Hey, it's Luke. No cute stuff this week. Trying to get this episode out uh, in a timely manner. There's a really important vote coming up on Monday for the city council for a police contract that no joke has been about a decade in the making. And our beloved city council members might need a little help doing the right thing. So this is going to be a weird, I don't know, and maybe it's actually a model that I'm going to like, but a two-part episode where we talk about the police contract in Spokane, part one. Part two is going to be the second half of the interview with Stephen Robbins, the immigration attorney I spoke with from Yakima last week. So my Spokies are going to be really, really interested in part one, but do not sleep on part two. Do not close that app. Leave it open. My man, Steven has a couple really hilarious and tragically brutal insights, including a little nugget that I'll tease here. To the extent that you could extend that metaphor, it would be like you've got a house with a fence around it. And every day you go and you let in, uh, let's say you have a sign that says like, do not enter. But every day you go down and you let in your housekeeper and she comes in and she cleans and she does a great job. And like, you don't have any time for housekeeping. So you actually really depend on her for like basic maintenance of your home. Right. And then one day you walk in on her and you're like, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Didn't you see the sign? (laughs) Holy shit. Like you are not allowed to be here. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like you depend on me. And I like (laughs) everyone knows I'm here. So yeah, it starts off with a little hyper local civics lesson, but do not sleep on dessert which is my man Stephen Robbins coming back for another round of dunking on our immigration policy. The end, let's be honest, the fundamental stories we tell about ourselves as a nation. All right, cool. Not even going to do the intro music yet. Just going to go straight to part one. Okay, so this police contract, it's about to be voted on by city council. It's already been, it was written sort of by the city administration over the course of part of Mayor Condon's term. And Mayor Woodward has sort of finalized it and now sent it to city council for a vote to be ratified. A contract that would govern not just salary and stuff, but certain really key bargaining elements, like who they're responsible to, what the sort of chain of command or the disciplinary structure looks like when one of them gets in trouble or just when there's a complaint. Would it surprise you to know that police unions in their contracts work very, very hard to ensure there's as little civilian oversight as possible over their behaviors, even when there's been a serious complaint, internal or external. So kind of a long time ago, seven years ago, you may remember this, we voted on a city charter amendment to establish an office of a police ombudsman to have more public oversight over the actions of police. This contract seeks to radically undermine the office that we all created. I'll get into the details in a second, but... The too long didn't read is this is not a good contract in objective terms, but it would be a indefensible political move for city council to pass this. And it shows fundamentally how uneducated Mayor Woodward is about the history of the city she was a news anchor at for 20 or 30 years or whatever. I would hate to think it's the other option that she just is spiteful of the will of the people and disregards it. This contract flies in the face of legislation we all passed, again, to amend the city charter, something that takes like 60% of the vote. We passed it almost 70% of the vote. We love patting ourselves on the back for supporting libraries and parks and schools. This did better than all of those. 
So we should also be patting ourselves on the back for supporting police accountability. It only failed in one precinct in all of Spokane, meaning not only was there overwhelming support, overwhelming support was spread across every demographic, every socioeconomic demographic, every racial demographic, every precinct in our city except one, and that precinct had 25 voters, it was basically Beacon Hill, was the only one that voted against this measure to encode in our effectively what is our city constitution, a strong ombudsman, an office of public ombudsmanship to oversee law enforcement in this city. And this contract would allow police to just fire that person whenever he or she pissed them off and also eject members of the governing commission that sort of supports the ombudsman. So there's like a citizen commission for the ombudsman. Cops could be like, oh, we don't like that person. Get rid of them. That's not real oversight. That's not oversight. It's not oversight. If you can. Ah, maddening, maddening. Just going to push through. <sighs> OK, so with that as background, this is a letter that I wrote to uh, council members Wilkerson, Beggs and Kinnear. They're the people who represent the second district, which is where I live. So these are the people I actively voted for. Actually, Wilkerson was an appointment after Beggs became city council president, but I was glad she was appointed. I supported the appointment. And one of the reasons I did in all three cases was I believed that they share my feeling that every single person deserves to feel equally safe and free in the city they live in. And you know what? I still believe that. That's one of the reasons I actually wrote this letter. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have wasted my breath. It's why I don't write letters to my congresswoman. Her actions over decades have shown we don't share the same values. But with counsel in this case, what it seems like is happening is that people are getting hung up on the details, the minutia. There are lawyers involved on both sides and there's just this real muddying of the moral waters in favor of just this hyper minutia around contracts and there's a chance that it might have to go to arbitration and there's a chance that they might lose. And if they lose, it might cost more money. But again, this is a morally necessary thing. And so I just wanted to get my feelings out there, hopefully like recenter the moral argument in the way you know, you're supposed to in a democracy. A tersely worded letter to your representatives. All right, here we go. Dear counsel, for my wife, for my family, for my friends, for me, please don't sign that contract. I'm writing you today because there's an important vote coming up on the new police contract. A contract that every credible person I've heard from says will limit the civilian oversight we fought so hard for in 2013, including a poison pill that would allow the department to remove the ombudsman and members of the commission at their sole discretion. I've lived on the South Hill for nearly 11 years. I see you walking your dogs at Cannon Hill and Manitou. We see each other at Rosars. I'm your neighbor and your constituent. I have a multiracial family and community I worry about constantly. My wife doesn't feel safe working downtown anymore. My friends talk about not feeling safe in their own skin. I've heard from several people that members of council are considering a yes vote. I'm begging those members to reconsider. I'm asking you all desperately to vote down this police contract. In 2013, I was one of the people who voted to amend the city charter, effectively changing the constitution of Spokane to encode in our literal founding documents the right of the residents of the city to have oversight of the law enforcement who are supposed to protect us. I didn't know how many people would join me in that, but ultimately the number was overwhelming. I'm sure you remember that 70% of people across this entire weird city came together to speak with a single voice. I've lived in this county my whole life, and that was the clearest, most unified I'd ever seen us. 
at the moment, I'd never been more proud. Since then, though, what's really changed? From my view, very little. Hurling a canine unit into the truck of a man who was screaming for surrender is barbaric. An officer kicking a man in the genitals, a black man who was handcuffed, is literal torture. As you know, the Spokane Police Department was the subject of a Department of Justice inquiry that yielded 42 recommendations for change within the department. City spokesman Brian Coddington says they've implemented all 42 and that use of force complaints are down. But that is not the full truth. As of data released a week ago, black people are still 12 times more likely to be arrested in Spokane than white people. In the spokesman, and I apologize, this is about the most tangled quote you'll ever hear. I'm going to have to read it really slow. (laughs) And then I'm going to unpack it. Sorry, that was me just cutting in for a second. Quote, Meidel pointed to a 25% reduction since 2017 in the ratio of black people who were arrested compared to black people who experienced force. Compared to 2017, 72 more black people were arrested in 2019, and two fewer experienced a use of force, reducing the overall ratio by 25% over two years. Could you follow that? (laughs) So let's pull apart those numbers. Cops used force nearly as many times as they had in 2017, just two fewer times. But the ratio looked a lot lower, 25% lower, because they just arrested 72 more black people. Black people were already massively over-policed compared with white people, 12 times more likely than white people to be arrested. And they're using the increase in arrests of black people to make it seem like there's less racism going on. It's absolutely incredible. And the police chief has the gall to go to the press and say, hey, we actually arrested more black people, but we beat them up less or pulled guns on them less or threw them to the ground less. So that's a win. It's statistical cherry picking at best. And it relies on worsening racial disparities. So the police department leans back into greater over-policing of black people and Chief Meidel twists the data to make it look like a great leap forward. That isn't progress. It's a PR stunt. I'm forgetting how mad I was when I wrote this. (laughs) In the wake of George Floyd's death, Meidel went on camera and talked about all the things the Minneapolis PD officers did wrong that day. Quote, you just want to yell across time and tell them, don't do this, he told reporters. Then just days later comes documented evidence on Facebook of the same technique that killed George Floyd being used in Spokane, an officer kneeling on a man's neck during a routine stop. I don't know whether Chief Meidel and SPD leadership knew about that incident or whether they didn't, but either way, it demands a strong ombudsman to take public testimony like that. Again, it was a Facebook post and make the public aware of these abuses of power so that we can put pressure on law enforcement to change because it's clear the police are not adequately policing themselves. What is happening across this entire nation and large parts of the world isn't happening because cops decided to clean their own house. It's only happening because the people have taken it upon themselves to record misconduct when they see it. They say sunlight is the best disinfectant, and these days we all carry little rays of sunshine in our pockets. Change is happening now only in those places where the people demand it and elected officials act. The people of Spokane made their demand in 2013. Seven years later, it's time for y'all to finally act. It's probably actually wrong of me to draw a distinction between the public and its leaders. You three are the public. You are the people elected or appointed to represent the citizens of District 2. 
You are our voice. We could not have been more clear in 2013. We did our job. On Monday, please, please do yours. All right, yeah, so that was the letter. <laughs> uh, there's The vote is scheduled for Monday, June 29th. So if you got time, I'll put links to everybody's email addresses. It's really easy to email your city council person. If you want to do that, go for it. Please do. It would be amazing. Maybe also share the post that I'm putting up for range to get the word out and maybe get other people to share as well. Oversight is profoundly important, obviously, and we can't let the people who are being overseen just fire the person overseeing them whenever they want. That's not oversight. Like I said, if you can fire your boss, they're not really your boss, right? If you can fire the watchdog, they're not an effective watchdog. So again, the work of 2013 is not done in this case because a charter amendment is meaningless until it trickles down to the laws that govern us and trickles down to the contracts that govern our public servants. Our job is done, but city council's isn't. The mayor's isn't. The mayor wants to be done. We need city council to say no, back to the drawing board. So anyway, that's probably the most consequential city council decision that will happen this year. And it's probably the most consequential city council decision of the last decade, maybe. And it's probably going to happen on Monday unless they push it again, because they already pushed it for two weeks, which is one of the reasons to be scared of this. And the reason to speak out, it should have been a 7-0 no vote, but a few people got cold feet and they started actively lobbying for a yes vote for some reason. This is all stuff that I've heard through back channels. I'm not going to say which council people were doing it because it's all hearsay, whatever, but we really need to keep the pressure on so that the, this contract is written, goes down in flames, and then we go back to the bargaining table and start over. Okay, that's enough of that. Short first part. Second part coming up in just a sec. The second half of my interview with uh, Yakima immigration attorney Stephen Robbins from last week. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 9, Part 2, Our Borders, Ourselves. Okay, I wanted to talk about borders, too. Um, so what... Man, how does it even work when you're sort of... Maybe we even just start. Let's just start more basic. Like, what is your purview as an immigration lawyer? What sort of stuff do you do? What sort of work do you do for people? Are you still there? I muted myself on accident. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So most of my clients are farm workers. They're usually undocumented or they have an undocumented uh, loved one and they're trying to work out uh, some sort of legal status for them. So that's sort of uh, the thrust of what I do. I don't do any employment stuff or temporary agricultural visas, uh, not necessarily for a particular reason. Uh, I just don't want to. <laughs> um, and it hasn't come up enough for me to, to develop any type of uh, skill in that area. Right. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's basically what I do. And so I think I was listening to your podcast, which I'll also link to in the notes, but, um, 
you were talking about how some of your clients have to go back down to Mexico and wait for a hearing and stuff. Like, how do you, are you just communicating with people over the phone a lot or do you end up flying down for those hearings or what do the hearings even happen? Oh yeah. So a lot of folks who, um, if you, you know, enter the country without inspection or illegally, uh, you know, by evading, uh, border patrol, if they later end up getting married to a U.S. citizen or having some way to, to legalize to a family member, uh, they often have to go back down for an interview at the consulate. Okay. And so, um, and that's sort of a, a function of, of the law. And the law has ways to carve out like exceptions, which there are some. Uh, there used to be a law that said, um, you know what, if, if that's you, uh, you can just pay a thousand dollars and you can apply for your green card here rather than going back down. Oh, wow. But it had a sunset date, which was April uh, 30th, 2001. And so if your family petition is from before that date, you know, great, you can get your papers here by paying the thousand dollars. And if it's after that date, you know, no, no such luck. So there's, um, you know, ways that that could be avoided through a legislative fix. But anyways, people sometimes do have to go to Mexico for uh, consular interviews. And attorneys are not even allowed into those interviews, even if I wanted to go. So no, I, I, I don't, I don't go to those. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what's the con or what, what are the contours of those interviews? It's just like, who are you? Are you in a, are you a member of a drug cartel or is it more like, yeah. So by the time they get their interview, uh, their case has been pretty well vetted. They've had biometrics appointments, they filed all the evidence, you know, it's all in their file by that, by that time. They've also answered all the security questions about whether they're a terrorist or a prostitute. And so, (laughs) um, most of my clients tell me the interview is about five minutes long and they'll, they'll just rehash a couple of the questions from the form. And that's basically it. Okay. Unless there's, you know, something comes up in the the fingerprints and there's there's reason for uh, a deeper dive right like his name happens to be pablo escobar or something right yeah something like that we had a client get um placed in administrative processing which is that's like a legalese for you know jail black hole well, <laughs> yeah basically like we're going to be doing something with your case but you won't find out ever like what that is and we won't and we won't tell you oh my god and then like three months later uh somebody from the consulate called and they're like well you know we're gonna approve the case but he's got a warrant in new mexico and it was on some old traffic thing that he oh wow he didn't even know about so um you know stuff like that can come up did you say biometrics appointments like they're making sure they don't have like diabetes or something or what is what's the deal oh yeah biometrics just means like uh photograph and and fingerprint checks oh yeah. gotcha, so gotcha, they'll, gotcha. they'll take their picture and run it through whatever dystopian you know facial recognition software they have <laughs> and then the, the fingerprints uh link up with you know i'm sure the fbi all the different state right. databases and you know interpol or whatever <sighs> okay so what is the landscape of immigration law or your clients' lives? What does it look like maybe right now in COVID or just since Trump? How, how have things changed in the last three or four years? You know, Obama was a mixed bag and uh, there were bad things uh, for sure. And there were uh, some good things. There's some obvious good things like DACA and then some less known good things uh, that he did that helped thousands of people. You know, he also 
there were bad things. So it's just one of those things with life where people are almost never all good and all bad. Uh, There are usually some mix of both. And Obama would definitely fit that bill. Trump is uh, and has been 100% bad. Every level of decision-making has been horrible. Um, Every policy, memo, stuff that we know about, stuff we don't know about, little changes, big changes, have been geared towards one thing, which is making it harder or impossible for immigrants to legalize their status. Wow. So... I mean, there hasn't been, you know, even something remotely like, oh, OK, well, that that's kind of nice that we can do it that way now. You know, so sometimes there will be li- <laughs> little administrative changes like, oh, you know, now you can uh, email this form. <laughs> right. And it's, oh, OK, that's convenient. Like, no. I, all forms are now telegraph. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I'm dealing right now all over my floor is this family packet that came back, a bunch of forms. There's like. 14 different forms here and like the middle name box was left blank. Oh my God. Seriously. Which I've never put none in a middle name box, like in my entire career. (laughs) But sometime last year, immigration decided in certain cases, um, this was going to be a thing. Like we're every single box has to be filled out. And if not, we're, we're not just going to like, complain about it or send you a letter to like amend it, we're going to mail you back the entire thing and reject it. So it's just um, the pettiness of it and the meanness of it. It's like the banality of evil. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, it's absurd. (laughs) Yeah. Oh God. So I guess that's, that's actually it. So it's maybe it's just like the, the death by paperwork. Uh, I was going to ask is that, is there a corner of the the sort of Trump crisis that you feel is underrepresented or underreported or just maybe poorly understood? Like, yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason why it's not perfectly understood or, or communicated is a lot of these things are small bore. They're, you know, okay, my packet got mailed back. You know, I can resubmit it. It's not the world, the end of the world. Yeah. And when you go down the list, it's like, if you, If you review these things in isolation, you know, no single there's a few really big ones like coming out and saying, you know, victims of domestic violence can should never qualify for asylum. Like when the attorney general says that or right, that's awful or ending DACA or whatever, like those are really the ones you're kind of talking about. But this small stuff, it takes too long to explain, you know, each one. (laughs) Yeah. And and again, because no single thing feels that big. It's easy to kind of overlook it. But I think that, yeah, I don't know how to convey it. I guess it's sort of like if every day for three years, somebody put a five pound uh, weight in your backpack, you know? Yeah. And, and if somebody looked at each weight, they'd be like, well, you know, that's not so bad. That's nothing. Uh, Right. Yeah. In isolation. Yeah, totally. Right. Well, and it strikes me that this, so yeah, I mean, it's the other stuff is really awful too. What you're talking about, these little paperwork things, 
affect could potentially affect literally anyone no matter no matter how sort of perfect their application is on paper or how sort of seamless it should be they're just finding ways to just kind of kick you in the nuts at every step for everybody in america everybody who's trying to go through this process right and there's some i thought of one that i think it's fairly shocking so there, there's a visa called the u visa it's for victims of crimes and it was designed to like encourage victims of domestic violence or other serious crimes to participate with law enforcement investigations. And since the Obama administration, they've been pretty backlogged. So they take a really long time. Um, One thing that's started to happen is they've become more strict in how they mm, interpret who qualifies and who doesn't. And these are for cases that have been pending since like 2015. So there was no like warning, right? Like, well, in five years from now, they're going to crack down on these types of cases. Right. Um, and they also issued a memo, a memo, um, a couple of years ago saying, if we deny a U visa, we're now going to put the person in removal proceedings, which was explicitly not the case oh, wow. before that. So you, we could actually reassure people like the stated policy of the government is that they will not put you in proceedings. Like that's an, an extra reassurance that we're going to give these victims like that, right. that, that it's not risky. And the Trump administration said, well, no, fuck that. Um, so, <laughs> and so you could have somebody who suddenly, you know, the standard seems to be shifting, not in a formal way, but just in, in the way that they adjudicate the, the cases behind the scenes. And on top of that, you know, all that stuff your lawyer said and that we said about, you know, we're totally not going to put you in removal proceedings. Well, now we are. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, stuff like that, it's uh, it's really hard uh, for folks. Did you need to take a break real quick and get that guy or? Yeah, let me um, hop back on in just a second. Cool. Buenos Oh, man. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, it's good. I actually had to go close my windows anyways. So in Spokane, we have a ton of Border Patrol activity mm-hmm. at our intermodal center. Yeah. Does that, do you guys have that down in Yakima? They don't get down this far, but yeah, we've uh, seen a lot of action there and then down into like even Moses Lake area. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah. not, not this far. They're, they're only allowed to operate, I think, within 100 miles of the border. Oh, so you guys are too far south, basically. That's, that's right. It's for the Greyhound bus and... Uh, that's how a lot of folks travel, obviously, when you right. don't have a car or whatever. So is that ever impacted any of your clients? Uh, I've definitely had clients who were picked up uh, for that reason. <clears throat> you know, they were they were picked up uh, just in transit, either in Montana or in that area, the sort of Post Falls area. Um, right. For sure. Yeah. Oh. Uh, one thing one thing I've seen, we had a case once where a guy was uh, hunting with some friends, you know, camping, hunting. And uh, the sheriff showed up and couldn't communicate with them. So he needed to call an interpreter. Well, you can guess who he called. He called Border Patrol. Oh, my God. And that, that's uh, really common in Montana in that area. So, you know, the, the sheriff or the cops will pull somebody over. They're Spanish speaking. And Border Patrol is their go-to interpreter. Wow. And, and you, you can guess whether or not they stick to, like... <laughs> Uh, strict, strict trans- or interpretations right. of what's que- being said. Questions relating to the uh, stop, uh, they <laughs> they don't. So that's awful. Um, 
So the thing that was shocking to me, I don't know if you saw this, there was an article in December in The Guardian and it was written by, I think she she lives in Santa Monica now, but she was Dallas based at the time. And they wrote a story about the Border Patrol situation in Spokane. And I, I DM'd her and was like, this is cool. Thank you so much. But why Spokane? And she was like, she'd heard about this, this tactic of theirs to do bus sweeps. Mm-hmm. And that when she started looking into it, Spokane was like the worst place or the, the most frequently covered most number of cases in America, as far yeah. as you can tell. That's crazy. Yeah. There was a case recently where, so we had a, Somebody called because uh, her husband had been picked up uh, by Border Patrol and she didn't know like where he was or what was going on. And uh, he was doing some construction and had been arrested at the hotel where he was staying. And he does sort of like uh, traveling construction with some company. Um, Oh, sure. And, you know, trying to sort of get the facts and like figure out where he was and what happened. You know, I'm I'm an attorney and I've seen a lot of stuff. So, you know, I'm cynical and I'm I'm prone to at times be like, oh, you know, this guy's at a hotel. You know, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions, but your mind starts to go (laughs) (laughs) certain places, you know, uh, because we've seen those cases, too. And, you know, people will say, I don't know what happened. And. Uh, anyway, and then we find out what happened. Yeah, uh, yeah. but it, but it turns out, um, and it was kind of weird because I tweeted about it uh, that you know this guy was racially profiled, and and then the next day I, I spoke to the the local field office director with Border Patrol, and he goes, "It's not like you're saying on social media," which was odd. Wow! Uh, so he had, like looked into you. Somebody, somebody had, uh, yeah told him about my tweet or whatever but it turns out that like um what they do according to him this is their practice is they'll go into high crime areas with big giant air quotes around that um right (laughs) right and kind of like don't go below 40th right right, exactly don't they go below 40th and uh and they just start running plates you know so who's the wow who owns this car who's who's this car registered to who's this car registered to and then they're looking for hits right so anybody with like a prior border encounter and for a lot of people who are here illegally they had to try two or three times and they got here the third time sure so so those people have technically you know their names are in a database and so they're just basically fishing for uh anyone with an with a immigration violation and so that's what had happened to this guy. Um, you know, he had a prior border encounter and and so they arrested him. So, yeah, I mean, those types of tactics, it's, it's like when I think about sort of the rhetoric, I often think about how if what existed in the mind of a conservative were real, like I would also be afraid of immigrants. Like, <laughs> first of all, in their minds, there's like this totally easy way to get papers. Right. And yet there's millions of people who don't. Right. For some nefarious reason. Right. And also, like, they're all secretly in gangs and gangs all want, like, gangs just meet up to talk about how they want to murder, like, old white ladies. Um, (laughs) Like, if that were real, I would be like, that would, you know, I'd be pretty anti-immigrant too but it's just not (laughs) real so if you can but if you compare the rhetoric of like drug dealers and this and that and then you imagine like these border patrol officers late at night 
in a truck, you know, just running random plates and the millions and millions and billions of dollars that we spend on that type of enforcement. Yeah. And it's not like they ran the plate and like the guy was a rapist, right? Or they ran the plates and he had five warrants in five different states. Right. Um, You know, he's a construction worker, basically. You start to see the the disconnect. And also, 9-11, like, was a real thing, right? Right, yeah, of course. Like, there are people that want to do, like, actual terror stuff. And uh, to have developed this agency with massive powers and, you know, thousands of agents, and then to have them, again, sitting in in a truck in Post Falls, Idaho, like... (laughs) <laughs> looking at the license plate of a random <laughs> of random dude it's like uh yeah uh really frustrating i don't know if we want to get into the philosophy of this and i don't know the the history of this super well but my my grandma was my dad's half mexican and he uh, and i'm adopted so that's why i <laughs> i'm not an eighth mexican but um he, she she and her family came up and down and eventually settled in the in the central valley of california in stockton and uh I started just like digging into the history of the way people used to come and go pretty easily when the borders were relatively porous. They would come, they would do their, you know, they'd come pick in, you know, almonds and stuff and whatever in, in avocados. And they'd go home when the season was done and they could support their family that way. And it strikes me that, so by closing the border, we've just forced people to stay here, which creates, I'm sure, a lot of certain amount of stress on certain parts of the system. But then it also requires that if you're going to try to keep people out, you have to create this whole new layer of you know law enforcement bureaucracy where you're, if you get in the, the more serious you get about it, you do ridiculous things because you're right. The majority of these people aren't breaking any laws. They're not rapists. So the only way you're going to find them is if you're scanning random license plates and post falls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is true. This is just my anecdotal observation, but I think if you could, tell an immigrant, uh, an undocumented immigrant, at least amongst my clients, you're going to have two options. One, in five years, you can get citizenship. Uh, but you, you know, you have to stay here, you can't leave. And you have to, you know, obey all the laws or whatever, but you'll get citizenship. And the other was, right now, I'll give you just a work permit, but a work permit that allows you to travel back and forth to Mexico. Uh, most of them would take the work permit because one of the major questions we get is, you know, I've got a sick family member. It's now been 10, 15, 20 years since I've been home or been to Mexico. And uh, I'm desperate to see my dying mother or father, whoever. Right. And it's not just that the border is militarized and that trip is dangerous, but there's also legal bars to legalization that are triggered if somebody leaves so you might oh, wow. you might have a green card like that's or a u visa or some way to legalize but if you leave then you're fucked <laughs> like wow. so um the system is really poorly designed and it does yeah keep people trapped here so then people are forced to to choose like if I go to Mexico, I will be reunited with one part of my family, but then I'll be abandoning this other part of my family because, you know, usually they have uh, kids and ties and jobs and things like that. And so it's a it's a terrible choice to have to make. It strikes me. I uh, I had never really thought about this until we just had this conversation, but I, I got to go to uh, 
northern or you know like france and belgium and then amsterdam a couple of years ago with my wife and we got to hang out. our buddy is a writer and he had like a, a dutch publicist and we got to get drinks with this guy and it was i mean just way above my uh, pay grade but his partner they live in amsterdam and his partner works in belgium and he just and, and because it's the eu he just drives back and forth or takes the train back and forth across the border and so it's just, it's just a very cosmopolitan way of living and it's and it and nobody cares and i don't know man it just it strikes me that the like the what we've done to to sort of work ourselves up in knots to like create this this strong this fortress america or whatever is just doing so much damage to so many people, including ourselves in ways we probably don't even realize in terms of like, what could that billion, those billions of dollars of, you know, border patrol law enforcement be better spent on. Right. It's just, it makes me sick and sad. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, really frustrating. People like the, um, people like the, the home analogies, like, you know, you've got a fence around your house and, <laughs> and, uh, also you, you've got to bed, you know, balance your budget at home, right? Like these things right. that are not analogous right. to a, an entire country. <laughs> totally. But to the extent that you could extend that metaphor, it would be like, you've got a house with a fence around it and every day you go and you let in, uh, let's say you have a sign that says like, do not enter, but every day you go down and you let in your housekeeper and she comes in and she cleans and she does a great job. And like, you don't have any time for housekeeping. So you actually really depend on her for like ba- basic maintenance of your home. Right. And then one day you walk in on her and you're like, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> Didn't you see the sign? <laughs> Holy shit. Like you are not allowed to be here. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like you depend on me. And I like, (laughs) everyone knows I'm here. Like, this is not a secret. I didn't sneak in or, you know, maybe I, whatever, like maybe you didn't open the gate this time, but you know, whatever the analogy gets tricky if we get too far into the weeds, but uh, that's the, (laughs) that's the basic idea. So again, like in the conservative mind, there's people here illegally and they're all doing illegal things and that's really scary. And I agree like that would, that would be really scary if that were like even remotely true, (laughs) but everything about the real world is tells us something different, which is they're doing critical jobs that we really depend on. They're good people. They commit crimes at a lower rate than people like you and I, right. and like, if you lived in a, in a neighborhood of just undocumented immigrants, you'd be less likely to be a victim of a crime. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's really infuriating, but, uh, <laughs> that's, that's where we are. One, maybe one last question before you go. Uh, or do you really have to just like dip right now? Oh, it's fine. I can do one more. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm curious. Do, have you looked into Biden's platform at all do you do you have a sense of if he would get demonstrably better or worse yeah his his proposal is pretty good i mean it's uh, um again like 
even assuming he did all the bad Obama stuff. Sure. If he just rolled back some of the bad Trump stuff, it would be a massive improvement. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I get real weary of, uh, and frankly, it's exhausting to hear people try to conflate the two because they're just. They're not. um, Yeah. They're not remotely the same. And I understand that there might be certain areas of the law or areas of politics where they really are truly the same or, or whatever. But this is one area where, uh, you know, even like, let's say they were totally the same in every way, every way. But on day one, Biden reinstates DACA. Yeah. And then he doesn't do anything else. And he's terrible on immigration. He, he just keeps all of Trump's other policies. Then that alone is it's worth not only voting for Biden, but like advocating for him and working for him. I see some people on the left saying like, well, I'm not going to lift a finger for him, you know, because like I'm been out of shape about Bernie still. And I get that. And Biden sucks. Like, trust me, I'm not like (laughs) real excited. But again, like even if we boiled it down to just that one issue, you know. Yeah, it's it's real people's lives for sure. Yeah. And it sucks because like I hate saying that i hate that (laughs) that that's the reality that we're living in but you know people have to like imagine for a second you had daca and it's like okay when is the next day that the supreme court's going to be issuing decisions and you're just waiting yeah i couldn't even i couldn't even imagine that man i couldn't even imagine you know it's it's conversations like this that help you sort of just realize that there's just layers and layers and layers and layers of things i don't even have to worry about and never will right uh everybody like so many people have to so right cool man well thank you so much Stephen robbins for coming on uh this is really cool yeah it was fun uh i probably rambled too much early on but uh <laughs> we were you know we were just it was the first interview i've recorded so i think we were uh yeah we're just f- getting our seal legs man right awesome well good luck All with right. your show and if you want to talk again give me a call sweet sounds good thanks man later, see ya later Thanks again so much to Stephen Robbins. That's it for this week. Your homework by Monday, hug an immigrant and call your council person. I obviously mean email them. Ain't nobody calling nobody. And by hug an immigrant, I obviously mean smash white supremacy. (laughs) 